This is not a test. This is not a test. Please remain calm. Unburied dead are coming back to life and seeking human victims. Seeking human victims. episodes for you so sit back relax and enjoy them uh we like to get a little weird on these sometimes we just saw a couple of wrestling themed bonus episodes we're stepping out of the ring for a while and going into the wacky world of trauma films but not just trauma films. Of course, we've done some comedies and some other genres besides horror here in these bonus episodes. But tonight, we do a movie that combines a lot of genres. You got a little horror, got a lot of comedy, and you got a fucking musical. We are talking about Cannibal the Musical, originally from 1993. This week on Seeking Human Victims. That is, of course, the first project and feature film of Trey Parker and Matt Stone of South Park and so much more fame. So we're going to look at what launched that famous career. And I am your host, the original motherfucker. The devil you know and the high priest of the coven of the goat and the man who helped my team win war games this week, the Rev Dan Wilson. And I am here with my fellow cannibals first, Dreamboat Danny. Excuse me. I've been doing some thinking. Um, just looking at our situation here and uh I've come to the conclusion that we're completely fucked. Has anybody else made this discovery? <laughs> Only every day when I wake up. Ow! And also, welcome back to the program, the Jackal of Carlsberg, Big Daddy Grizz, Jason Grizzle. Okay, well, fuck you. How's that for constructive? <laughs> And rounded out this cast of crazies, the one, the only, the great Muji. My heart is full as a baked potato. Aren't you glad you didn't do that line, Annie? I was going to say, all three, all three of my lines that I had were the three that we just did. I'm glad I went first. That was, uh, that happens occasionally. This was a very quotable movie. Uh. 
It's a movie like I've seen, but I saw it like years ago when South Park first, you know, broke big. And I saw it maybe with Grizz or at least with that group of friends, maybe Jeremy Stewart, former co-host of this show. Uh, but it was like a party atmosphere. It was like a lot of people there and like we were just kind of like half paying attention to it and laughing at some of the shit that came up, but not like super duper tuned in to it so it's been a long time since i've seen it i had some vague recollections but this was was almost a completely fresh watch for me yeah um i'm not sure i was with you at that viewing because uh the only time i remember seeing this was like it came on in the middle of the afternoon maybe on like ifc or something but you know my wife dipped in and said that we watched it together while we were dating so points for her she still married me after knowing what i watch but other than that, it was pretty fresh for me. I didn't remember a whole lot of it. Yeah, I've seen it a couple of times. I did once own this on like DVD when I was going through a phase where I was buying up all the trauma movies. So I think that was it for me where it was like the combination of that, you know, South Park, you know, when it took off or during like my glory years of watching South Park where, you know, you're watching it like every week and being like, oh, these guys did a movie a long time ago, but it's funny. And then also the fact I was buying up all the trauma stuff. And then, yeah, it's when I'm pretty sure I've only seen it the one time when I bought the DVD. And then, you know, that was 20 years ago. That's the first time I've seen this. I've been aware of it for a very long time, but never sought it out. And so this is really the first time watching it for me. Right on. Well, it was, uh, you know, kind of a new experience for most of us then, even those who did, you know, at least partially seen it or seen it a long time ago and burnt that brain cell, which happens. We'll dig further into Cannibal the Musical here very shortly. But before we do that, of course, our wonderful sponsors at Horror, Pain, Gore, Death Productions are back. Uh, Grizz this is actually the same band that we had on the last show with a new song. So, uh, I was uh, real happy with your ad read on that being a thrash metal guy. Why don't you, uh, why don't you read this one for us? Horror, pain, gore, death productions. Welcome destabilizer to the roster with the debut album. Violence is the answer formed in 2020 in Denmark. Destabilizer performed vicious and uncompromising chaotic thrash metal with lyrics that provoke and challenge. Violence is the Answer delves into the darkest recesses of the human psyche. With a fast-paced and guitar-driven sound that is a furious storm of intensity, accompanied by blistering solos that ignite the senses, Destabilizer deliver a relentless sonic assault that pushes the boundaries of aggression. A chilling atmosphere that transports listeners to a darker realm, Violence is the Answer showcases ten tracks of explosive thrash, complemented by the gory and satanic imagery of renowned artist Mario Lopez, which adds a visually striking dimension to the work for fans of Exodus, Exumer, Creator, Razor, Rigor Mortis, Slayer, Sodom, Tankard, Violence, and Voivod. Here is King Paimon by Destabilizer. And it's kicking off this week's episode of Seeking Human Victims.
as well as the Book of Mormon in 2011 with his creative partner, Matt Stone. Matt Stone appears in this. He is a co-producer on this, but uh, this is more of a Parker project. It's more of a, before they became just like the duo, right? Uh, Parker was interested in film and music as a child and at high school, and he attended the University of Colorado Boulder, where he met Stone, and they collaborate on va- collaborated on various short films, and, of course, co-starred in the movie we're talking about tonight. They later moved to Los Angeles, California. And Parker made his second feature-length film in 1997, Orgasmo, another fucking hilarious movie that you should watch if you get a chance. Uh, before I've the, seen that one. I, I, think, I think we've all definitely seen that one in here, huh? Oh, yeah. 
many times. Yeah, that's a classic. <laughs> Seeking human victims approved. We didn't do an episode on it, but you just heard a unanimous praise for it. So there you go. Um, before the premiere of the film, South Park premiered on Comedy Central in August of 1997. And of course, the duo possessed full creative control of the show. They produced music and video games based on it. A film based on the series South Park Bigger, Longer, and Uncut from 1999, which received good reviews from critics and fans. Uh, Parker went on to write, produce, and direct, and star in the satirical action film using marionettes. Team America World Police in 2004. And after several years of development, the previously mentioned Book of Mormon, which premiered on Broadway to good reviews. And it's toward the country and world as one of the, the bigger recent Broadway shows. Parker himself has received five Primetime Emmy Awards for his work on South Park, four Tony Awards, and a Grammy Award for the Book of Mormon, as well as an Academy Award nomination for the song Blame Canada from South Park Bigger, Longer, Uncut. But let's go all the way back to the beginning before any of that. The film Cannibal the Musical, not what it was called then, originally called Alfred Packer the Musical, uh, began as a three-minute trailer made for his film class. And it was an idea that Parker and his friends had had for a while, but it was inspired in part by Parker's resentment towards his ex-fiancee, Leanne Adamo, after discovering her cheating on him not long before their wedding, with Packer's disloyal horse, Leanne, in the final film being based on her and named after her. After the trailer drew much attention, Parker and Stone raised around $125,000 and began shooting the full-length film. The horse thing is really funny because, like, the the jokes throughout are obviously supposed to be, you know, double entendres. Uh, but it's even funnier that he's also, at the same time, completely roasting his eggs. That's really funny. But in the damn town's ridden your horse. Yeah, that's... Uh... <laughs> That's going to extraordinary lengths to get revenge. It is loosely based on the real story of Alfred Packer and the sordid details of the trip from Utah to Colorado that left his five fellow travelers dead and partially eaten. Trey Parker, originally credited in the film as Juan Schwartz, stars as Alfred Packer with frequent collaborators Stone, uh, Diane Bacar, and others playing the supporting roles. Music by Trey Parker and Rich Sanders. Of course, it is a musical, so there is uh, a lot of songs. And contrasting with the musical's generally dark and morbid humor are its extremely cheerful songs, all in, all composed by Parker, including Let's Build a Snowman, When I Was on Top of You, Hang the Bastard, and Spadoinkle. The last of these is a transparent parody of the song, Oh, What a Beautiful Morning, from the Rodgers and Hammerstein musical, Oklahoma. The, most of the music is very Oklahoma-y. There were two songs originally to be in the film that were later taken out. One was Shatterproof, a rap song sung by Packer during the bar fight, and Don't Be Stupid, a song by some of the Bingham Canyon miners after the reprise of Spadoinkle. In an interview with Ian Harden, it revealed that Trey thought Shatterproof made Packer seem too tough. And, of course, Trey Parker himself plays Alfred Packer. And then Toddy Walters played Polly Pry, one of the only women in the movie. Uh, she's a Denver native. 
Uh, she's been a singer, songwriter, actor, and voice actor for the bulk of her life. She also went to the University of Colorado. It's where she met Trey Parker and got cast in this live-action film. She was cast in the role of Polly Pry. Uh, she actually dated Trey Parker over the course of the film, as well as during the course of Orgasmo. The two eventually broke up, but Walter still made appearances in their animated series South Park and in the feature film adaptation playing Winona Ryder, as well as their short-lived series That's My Bush. Uh, as a singer-songwriter, her debut album was called Grotto and was released in 1997. She moved to L.A. in 1998 and worked in the entertainment industry as a production assistant on commercials and feature films. In 2001, she toured with BT as a singer and collaborated with Paul and Price on several albums and commercials. Um, she released Planet Satsuma. On October 24th, 2007, she was the main vocalist for the soundtrack of John Carpenter's The Ward, and uh, she formed and performed an Amy Winehouse tribute band in 2015 to 2018. Uh, she also starred in the dark comedy Stadium Anthem, shot in Denver in 2018. In addition to acting, she served as the music supervisor, contributing original songs. She currently resides in Basalt, Colorado with her partner and is an active performer in regional plays and theater. And she appeared in a lot of South Park episodes. Uh, she was the voice of Enya in the episode Death. She was the Indigo Girls in Tom's Rhinoplasty. She was the singing voiceman in, in Cartman's Mom's a Dirty Slut. She was Nurse Goodley in that same episode. She was Phyllis in Chef's Salty Chocolate Balls. She was Alanis Morissette in the Chef Aid episode. She was Mr. Hanky's helper in Merry Christmas, Charlie Manson. She was Kelly in Rainforest, Schmain Forest, the home act teacher in Tweak vs. Craig, and as previously mentioned, Winona Ryder in Bigger, Longer, and Uncut. Those are actually some like pretty like iconic spots that she did on South Park there. Yeah, they, they have a squad that they have, you know, kind of stayed loyal to this whole time, which you gotta appreciate. They definitely tried to bring their people along for the ride. And uh Diane Bacar, or maybe Deanne, I I I looked at the pronunciation on Wikipedia and still wasn't sure. Uh he played George California Noon. He attended Chatterfield Senior High School. And went to University of Colorado, of course, where he met Parker and Stone. Went on to star in this movie. He's Chota Boy in Orgasmo. He is in uh, Basketball. He's, uh, what, Squeak, I think is the character's name in Basketball. Uh, he's still active. He was uh, recently in Murders of Brandywine Theater. And the Western drama short film Homestead. He's also himself been in several South Park episodes. He was in Cow Days, voicing the game show announcer, the fake Mr. Hankey and Merry Christmas, Charlie Manson, Satan's lover Chris in Do the Handicapped Go to Hell, and probably, again, returning as the character Chris. And then we had Jason. Oh, go ahead. That's a motherfucker that, like, every time I see him in something, it takes me like a good three minutes to be like, what do I know him from? He's he's so specific looking. What is it? And then I realize it's just like pretty much all exclusively, um, you know, various projects of, you know, Trey Parker and Matt Stone. <laughs> and that's about it. Yep. He is another regular for them. 
And then we had Jason McHugh as Frank Miller, uh, also known for his work with Parker and Stone. He produced this as well as Orgasmo, and he was part of the porno crew in Orgasmo. In addition to being Frank Miller in this movie, he also did voices on South Park. Uh, he wrote and directed Minefield, which was a text messaging prankster game created by Perry Farrell for Lollapalooza. Uh, he produced and acted in Les Claypool's mockumentary Electric Apricot, working alongside Matt Stone, Diane Bacar, and Kyle McCullough, who's a writer on South Park. Um, in 2008, he made his UK stage debut playing Mr. Mills in the stage production of Cannibal the Musical in Edinburgh. And he played the part for three performances. In 2011, he released a book called Spadoinkle, The Making of Cannibal the Musical, which chronicles all aspects of making of Cannibal the Musical. And a lot of these people, you know, this is like a college film project, so not a, not a lot of these people necessarily had credits. Um, we had, uh, I actually, I... I won't go through even a lot of them. I, I will go through some of them because there's some amusing shit. Um, we, the Japanese foreign exchange students actually played the Nahanjin Indians. Yeah, I mean, it goes without saying, as many of the movies that we cover on this uh, podcast are, that they just wouldn't be made today or shown today. And that was like one of definitely the moments where I was like, oh, yeah. There's fucking no chance. No chance. And uh, then we also had Randy Parker as Judge Jerry, who is Trey Parker's real dad and the basis of character Randy on South Park. And then Stan Brackage played Noon's father. He's actually, I don't know if like he was just a friend of theirs or hanging around or what. He's a, a very important filmmaker in 20th century experimental film. Not really known for being an actor. Apparently, allegedly, Leanne Adamo plays one of the dancers in the Hang the Bastard number, but is uncredited. Like, that's wild. If yeah, true. Twisting that knife, isn't Right? And, uh, yeah, I mean, uh, none of these other people really had credits, so there's not, not much else to say there about the rest of the cast. But, um... Let's talk about the shooting dates and locations. So the film was shot during weekends on spring break in 1993 and on spring break in 1993. And according to Ian Harden, most of the crew failed their film history class. As a result, filming was done on location throughout Colorado in Denver, the Colorado National Monument, Black Canyon and Ouray with the courtroom scenes being shot in the actual courthouse that Alfred Packer was tried in in Lake City and the town scenes taking place in Provo, Sagosh, and the hanging scene being shot in different parts of the Buckskin Joe Old West theme park in Canyon City. That's kind of crazy that, uh, you know, uh, a theme park would just let some college kids come shoot a fake hanging. <laughs> yeah, you might even say it's odd or interesting. And with that odd and interesting fact, let's open the door to the auditorium. Strange truths and morbid curiosities will be revealed inside the auditorium. Just some of the insults that were uh, related to Leanne. The horse that would let anyone ride her was the nickname there in the film. Spadoinkle was not originally intended to be in the finished film. But while writing the music, 
Parker wrote it as a filler until he could think of something better for the song. But his friends all agreed that the word needed to stay. The Japanese Indians were referred to as the Nihonjin. That is a Japanese word for Japanese people. And they were placed by Japanese exchange students. And apparently while at UCB, Parker had a double major in music and Japanese. When Alfred wakes up from the bizarre dream about Frenchie, he screams Ike for no apparent reason. Parker later explained that was an obscure reference to the film The Legend of Alfred Packer from 1980, which was the first biopic about Packer's life. In one scene, Packer also wakes from a dream and screams the exact same words, yet it's never explained why. A true it's not hot moment. As the Nahanjin Indians walk away with the group at Sword Point, one of them is heard loosely heard saying in Japanese, this movie is really stupid. Welcome to the land of blue light. His gesturing is actually sign language for Jesus Christ is dead. During the let's build a snowman scene, there is a close-up of the tap dancing. The next shot is a brief wide shot in the background. The snowman's head is replaced with an alien head, which is an ongoing in-joke for Trey Parker things. Alfred Packer is Colorado's only convicted cannibal. The short order grill at the University of Colorado at Boulder is named after him. That's funny. The university also has Alfred Packer Days, which can include a raw meat eating contest. I love the commitment. Just, just real quickly, I would like to point out that it's not Alfred as it is typed. It is Alfred. And it's actually said in the movie a few times. Alfred. Alf, Alfred, yes. Alfred Packer. A, a real uh, Oprah Orpa moment there. The woman in a black skirt and white blouse as the two men begin hang the bastard is actually Matt Stone in drag. And some of the extras appearing in the film were their professors, including avant-garde filmmaker Stan Brackage, as we mentioned. Uh, Don Yanacito as James' father, who still teaches filmmaking at Colorado Boulder. The courtroom dialogue was based on actual court transcripts and contemporary newspaper reports mentioning an old lady throwing a tomato at Packer. It's the only film by Trey Parker not to be given a, or threatened with an NC-17 rating. Uh, Masao Maki, who plays the Indian chief, is actually the owner of Sushi Zanmai in downtown Boulder, where UCB is located and where Parker and Stone attended college. While Polly is... Uh, oh, go ahead. Am I remembering correctly, was he also the sushi bar owner in Orgasmo? Oh, I think so. Wouldn't make sense. They They go back to the same well. When Polly's Same singing friends that agreed to work for cheap. Yeah. When Polly's singing about her feelings, she stares at the drawings of Packer's mugshot, where his prisoner number is two four six oh one, which is a reference to Jean Valjean in Les Miserables. It's a real fucking musical nerd in joke there. Apparently Parker was very shy and uncomfortable with the kissing scene with Toddy Walters, and after they dated, he went back and reshot those scenes. It was Lloyd Kaufman who convinced Trey Parker to change the title from Alf Alfred Packer the Musical to Cannibal the Musical, because though Packer is well known in Colorado, few outside the state know who he is. During the filming of this movie, Stone and Parker had dropped acid. During their trip, they came up with a character that would end up being Chef. The real Packer, at different points in his life, signed his name as Alfred or Alfred. It is not known why he used the incorrect spelling, although it is suspected he went along with the tattoo artist's mistake on his arm. <laughs> it's like, no, it's totally supposed to be that. That's the first time they, yeah, the first time they called him Alfred in the movie, I was like, I mean, it's low budget. They probably just fucked up saying it. And weren't going to refilm it. But then it happened multiple times. 
but not consistently. Yeah, that kind of thing was pretty common up through the 20th century, you know, when people were still barely literate and learning to write names or just spelling things phonetically. So, Hell, one of my friends found out um, her grandmother died. And um, while they were going through her personal belongings, they found out that when she was like 14, she decided she didn't like her birth name. So she just stopped using it and just changed her name. And they didn't find out that wasn't her name until she was dead. Yeah, the pre-internet days were a paradise, weren't they? (laughs) Parker continued the roasting on the commentary on DVD. He said, because Leanne wasn't really with the Dirty Trapper. She was with the Dirty Fucking Acapella Singer guy, and now she's with the manager of a Foley's. Oh, hi, I'm worth $7 million, and she's with the manager of Foley's. Whoops. And somebody really fucking didn't hold on to that grudge, did they? No, that was a fucking Bret Hart level grudge. Jesus Christ. But it sounds like they've uh, tr- maybe tried to like be friends and let her be in the background because they needed bodies for this scene, and then it went even worse. <laughs> or maybe you know he was just getting her back and saying, you know, at the end of it, by the way, you were in this movie. That's actually about you. So it was like maybe it was like a great like Scott Tinnerman esque plot. That's what we're talking about. The scene where the group fords the river was filmed at Gunnison River. They jumped into the river unnecessarily, which they now realize was pretty dangerous and quite stupid. The current was much stronger than they anticipated, and the long shot from across the river, you could tell they're having trouble. You could see the river pulling them away. Uh, We could have really been right on the edge, but we really are fucked right here. No, Stray Parker. The Japanese Indians were students from the University of Grand Junction. The crew met that morning. They were the only two Japanese people in Grand Junction. Um, so that actually seems to dispute the other statement that they were exchange students. Maybe they were exchange students from Grand Junction. (laughs) Marty Leeper, who plays the sheriff of Sagash, was incredibly hungover in his scene. Even forgot one of his lines. According to Trey Parker, Leanne was a dance choreographer. He had her choreograph the dance sequence in the hanging scene. He still doesn't know why he did that other than to show her he was making a feature film. MTV was on set that day. You can see her in front of a few big group shots. Okay, that's why she got it in there. So she made she made a habit of putting herself in the front, Diggs Parker. Parker was once said, we didn't know a lot about filmmaking, so we didn't know that you don't start a movie with a boring conversation. But he says, as they've learned with South Park, story isn't really important. For the song Spadoinkle, Parker had written the lyric, The sky is blue and all the leaves are green. The sun is as warm as a baked potato. I think you know exactly what I mean. It's a blank day. He couldn't figure out what word should be there. So they had to shoot something. And he figured he could just throw in a meaningless word. And then it would be dubbed over later. So there's a little more background on Spadoinkle. After about $4,000 were spent on the special effects in the opening scene, One of the most uh, expensive single moments of the film, but it all ended up on screen, they said. The uh, amusement park, the Buckskin Joe Frontier Town and Railway in Carson City that we mentioned, um, was pretty famous. A lot of westerns had been shot there. True Grit, Cat Bayou, and Lightning Jack were all shot there. According to Parker, about 15 different horses were used for Leanne, and they all look completely different from one another. If you play close attention, they range from dark brown to light tan as the film progresses. As the horse gets much larger, also, as the film goes on. Just a bunch of gay miners, says Stone, kicking off a story from Parker about bringing the film to Hollywood in their 20s. 
Everyone was so sure we were all gay. And now that you see it, of course you would think that we're all gay. This would come up again in subsequent songs. The last thing we hear before the commentary ends is, Hey Dave, you know what? You want a piece of me? Fuck you, man. Over the closing credits of the commentary, Jason McHugh apparently gives out Diane Bashar's phone number, but it's distorted beyond recognition. A lot of this was an homage to the Odyssey, very popular inspiration for movies and films and TV shows, an old as fuck book. The green coat Parker wears is his great grandfather's coat from World War One. Kind of looks like Elton John, they said. When Ian Harden's character is hit in the face with the cleaver, he turns and mutters children for no apparent reason. And that was the beginning of Parker and Stone starting to develop Chef, allegedly. Well, apparently on an acid trip. In the saloon scene, out of all the ADR work, they actually had Ted Henwin suck helium between takes. According to Parker, he passed out, or he almost passed out a number of times. Trey Parker notes, but that's not the way it happened. Bit of dialogue cutting into the opening credits is a reference to the Star Trek episode Court Martial, where Captain Kirk says the same thing in the opening. He says the worst experience during filming was wearing the fake beards which he commented were totally lifelike. Uh, the inexperienced makeup team used crepe hair and spirit gum, and it just immediately puts you in a bad mood as soon as you put them on. Parker also notes he never he swore never to wear a crepe hair beard ever again, but of course now I do every day. During the song, that's all I'm asking for. When the group's singing, walking towards the camera, you can clearly see Parker say cut at the end of the shot. And, you know, in the commentary, he just continues to roast his ex just nonstop. Apparently they say uh, he looks like Paul Stanley in the scene where he sings When I Was on Top of You. And of course he also wrote that for Leanne because I remember when I was on top of her. It's here where Parker and Jason discuss where Leanne lives now. You know, it says you're probably getting too specific. So I, I don't know, like, like, is that a gag? Like, is the chick in on it? Like, what's the deal? I don't know, but pretty funny in some respects. And then also, like, at some point it's like, all right, man. We get it. <laughs> yeah, it's like you won. You're rich now. Yeah, you're good. Well, we'll close the door on the auditorium, and uh, this is a college project. It's not going to be like traditional numbers, but we got some stuff to talk about. So let's look at the numbers. Numbers of the beat. Numbers of the Beast, the uh, movie was first released on October 31st, 1993 in Boulder, but then official release August the 30th of 1996, a runtime 96 minutes, and the budget was $125,000, and, um, you know, it looks like it was pretty much only released locally there, so not really any box office numbers to uh, that were recorded. Yeah, I'd say once Troma got a hold of it and it got in the rental market, I'm sure they made their 125k back and probably then some on it um, once the the South Park boom hit. But initially, it was just released in the Colorado area. So 1996 is when it got picked up by Troma, renamed Cannibal the Musical, and released nationally. But it did, still did not distribute widely until South Park debuted the following year. And then they re-released it. Currently holds a 63% of fresh rating on Rotten Tomatoes. 
consensus says this, if you're only going to watch one black comedy about a real life explorer whose whose fellow travelers ended up eaten, make it Cannibal the Musical. Um, it's gone on to have a legacy that lots of people still perform this live. Several amateur productions of it have been going on since 1996. Northern California. Uh, the Saturday Players did a six-month off-Broadway run in 2001, debuted in Rome and Europe in 2004. In 2005, a high school group tried to do it in Tucson, Arizona, but the show was censored by the school, so they performed it off-campus. And later that year, took their show to Germany. And then in 2006, it debuted in Minneapolis and Victoria Cannibal at the Fringe Festivals. 2008, in Las Vegas. And then Unexpected Productions launched the four October runs of Cannibal in Seattle. Um, in 2008, the rival theater company produced a large-scale professional production in Edinburgh. Uh, it aired at the West End Theater. 2011, it was performed in Winnipeg, Manitoba. 2012, in Orlando, Florida. 2015, in Toronto. 2014, in Vancouver. In 2019, it had its Bay Area premiere and ran from July 21st to 29th at the Moon Space. So this motherfucker has had a hell of a legacy in that respect. Like, it definitely spoke to the musical lovers, and they have been paying tribute to it ever since. And that's probably its biggest legacy besides being the thing that launched the South Park creators. So if you would like to own it on home video, you can and Annie will tell you how. So um, like Dan mentioned, shortly after South Park debuted and took off, Troma re-released the uh, this film on VHS and DVD um, where it developed its cult following. The DVD does contain, um, as mentioned, the drunken director's commentary where um, Parker and Stone and most of the cast get very drunk while they watch the film. Um, And probably because they're so drunk, the commentary does cut out a few times. But, you know, nature of the beast. Um, And since then, it was released... um, on umd for the sony psp if you remember that we've mentioned it a few times a special edition 13th anniversary dvd was also released by troma and they added additional features including all new interviews with the cast and the crew Um, and then it was again re-released in november of 2008 as part of the troma tro masterpiece collection Um, as Troma actually considers Cannibal to be one of their best films. And in that that release, that was a two-disc version, and that includes over three hours of special features, including never-before-seen deleted material and uh, footage of different live stage shows. Um, And then songs such as Shatterproof and the early short films that preceded cannibal um are were they were actually i'm sorry they were considered to be part of it but ultimately rejected so i'm guessing they're going to hold that off for the next anniversary release would probably be my guess uh because who doesn't want to see that uh but yeah so there's a few versions out there and 
you can watch it online too. Um, what was it, Tubi? What did we watch it on? Tubi and Pluto TV are the places you can find that bad boy. So we it's will also streaming on the cock. And it's there it's on the cock with no commercials. So there you go. And at this point, we're going to say goodbye to Cannibal the Musical. But before we do, we're going to give you our final motherfucking thoughts on this movie. Um, I'm a huge South Park fan, so like I definitely appreciate this for what it did to launch uh, those guys and, and all of the great stuff they've created for us over the years. Um, I enjoy this. I'm not like the biggest fucking fan of musicals. I don't hate them. But it's just like I'm I'm very familiar with a lot of musicals, too, because um, I, I, you know, was like a fucking theater kid in high school. So I, I was they were foisted on me against my will. But uh, the fucking it's not not always my jam. That said, like the fucking gore is spectacular in this, especially for a college film. It's pretty damn funny. Um, the songs are, are well constructed. And uh, this, I think it does kind of drags a little. Um, of course, you know, they, even they admit they really didn't know what they were doing at the time. But you can see, like, the raw talent is there. And they're clearly going to go far based on this movie. So, um, don't dislike the film. I'm a, I'm a big fan of what it launched and, and all of that. And there's a lot about it that I enjoy. But I just, I'm not, like, over the moon about it, if that makes sense. I'm I wouldn't say I'm indifferent to it, but I'm not like super enthusiastically in love with it. It's it's all right. Um, yeah, it's it was fun. It's exactly what you would expect from this wheelhouse. Um, it's very early. Um, at everything that they've admitted to about it, um, or you know, have talked about what's wrong with the movie because there's plenty wrong with it um but you know it it does show that that trey parker has been you know really good at writing absolutely fucking stupid songs and um about the weirdest topics just forever um it's unpolished and but you can still see like that this was that there's a lot of potential there. Um, and, you know, it is really interesting to go back and view or, you know, look at the early works of somebody who has gone on to become really, I mean, like very influential, iconic pop culture cornerstone type situation. Um, like its own brand of humor, like such Trey Parker and Matt Stone have like their own brand. And to see the beginnings of that and you know where it comes from and like it one thing that really was really funny to me was um we watch everything with captions on um and at one point in the movie it's i guess it's supposed to be like a background voice it's the cartman voice says something and in the captions even though this predates south park was cartman voice and then the words that were being said um so I think that's really fascinating um, to see it, the the other side. Uh, it's like seeing the dark side of the moon. Um, really cool. Um, but I probably won't 
watch it on like a regular basis or anything. I might watch it again, but not anytime soon. Well, at this point, I could pretty much just agree with everything you guys said. Um, yeah, uh, I was a big fan of South Park for a long time. I, I think we all were, as most people our age, you know, it premiered when we were, you know, getting to around adulthood, getting into that kind of humor. And, you know, it was, it's funny to see, you know, how those things were evolving and hearing the voices in the background and seeing some of the jokes that would later kind of come to fruition in South Park. Uh, these guys have obviously always been funny. Um, the effects are, you know, disgusting and hilarious. Uh, I'm not a big musical guy, like, at all. Um, but it being a, you know, a gory musical, it's a funny concept. So it's worth watching at least once. I can understand why people would say, well, I did that. You know, it is like a very long, you know, whatever it was, just a little over an hour and a half, something like that. It does seem very long, but it's got its moments and it's definitely worth at least a watch. Yeah. Unfortunately, no, uh, no new um, insightful thoughts really for me here. You guys kind of all <laughs> covered everything I was going to say. Um, I enjoyed it. It wasn't like a bad time. I remember when I saw it, you know, when it came out on DVD for the first time, when I was, you know, just 100%. I I still watch South Park from time to time now and, you know, and still think it's funny in the old episodes, especially still, you know, that are the classics still um, do it for me. But, you know, I watched this movie when I was like, you know, just 100% in where I bought, you know, the first few seasons on DVD already and, you know, watched it every week, you know, as soon as it came out and then, you know, talked to, you know, Dan and other friends about it if I wasn't watching it with them as soon as it came out. And so I remember watching this movie back then and thinking it was really funny because I was just totally into that. So I think that that's kind of the deal. If you're really into South Park, especially if you're just discovering it and going through it, I think this is kind of must see, you know, just for to kind of see where they started where, like you said, you can see, um, you know, the, um, the like unmolded clay version of what those guys are going to become. And, you know, it's, I mean, it's a fucking stupid movie, but it's silly. It'll make you laugh a decent bit. So I think it's worth a watch. I'm still a pretty big fan of South Park for the record. I, you know, I don't think they always hit. I think there's always a few episodes every season that are pretty throwaway, but I'm learning how they make the show in the last few years, they released that documentary where it's like they, you know, in six days, essentially they make an episode. Um, that's why they're always so current on current events and it's pretty wild and like what, to see kind of what a chaotic uh, writing and animating stage that six days is to get that show on the air. But um, I think, you know, they've, they've like, you know, explored the depths of the characters a lot and really tried to evolve the show a lot. You have to, they've kind of done something the Simpsons didn't really do which I think worked against them. And I, I still, it's getting harder and harder with this replaced ass voice cast and shit over the years to enjoy the Simpsons as much, but they still, even now will hit on a pretty good episode. But I think South Park has more hits per season still than the Simpsons. Like when they, when they nail it, like, especially the COVID specials. I don't know if you saw those, like right after all of the the pandemic stuff, <laughs> but that shit was fucking hilarious. And there's a few this season that were hilarious, and you know the rest of them you could miss or whatever. But 
to the, all you out there listening that have, you know, if you were a lapsed South Park fan that's maybe slept on the show, um, check back in with your, your favorite kids and see how they're doing. Because, uh, like, I don't know, to me, since they put the show, like, it made Randy Marsh kind of the focal point for a few seasons, which they seem to have kind of gone away from now. Um, and his weed farm, that shit cracked me the fuck up. I'm sorry. So, <laughs> um, anyway, just uh, an aside there for the South Park fans, and we all kind of gave our opinions on the current South Park, so I figured I'd throw mine in there as well. But nobody else has got any final, final thoughts. We're going to go ahead and wrap this fucker up and put a bow on it. We will be back next week with yet another bonus episode. And this time, another one for our pal, almost forgot to credit him, executive producer James, who was the sponsor of this episode. And um, as a gift to him, we're coming back with another bonus episode next week with another trauma movie. We're watching Toxic Avenger. It's getting remade soon. So we will check in with the OG Toxie next week on Seeking Human Victims. This is not a test. This is not a test. Please remain calm. Unburied dead are coming back to life and seeking human victims. Seeking human victims. Product of One Good Scare Productions. It is written, edited, researched, and directed by Dan Wilson, with assistance by Fuji Grant and Annie Wilson. Original music is provided by Shredderford, as well as KD Grant. All other music and audio clips are property of their respective editors.